We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today, a subject that's tough to talk about, but that needs our attention regionally and nationally. It's been steadily rising for two decades here and elsewhere. In fact, Missouri's suicide rate is higher than the national average. This is National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, so what can we do to reverse the trend? Joining me in studio to talk about it are Dr. Bart Andrews, Vice President of Telehealth and Home Community Services at the Missouri Department of Mental Health. He's a suicide attempt survivor. Shelby Zurich is Hope After Program Coordinator for Provident, which is a center that provides behavioral health resources and hotline assistance to those in crisis situations. Sergeant Gary Robertson is the Crisis Intervention Team Supervisor with the St. Louis County Police Department. He joins us by phone. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you, Don. Shelby, let me begin with you. Uh, do you have any sense as to why the number of suicides has been on the upswing for so many years? Sure, yeah. That's a good question. It's very complicated to answer. Um, you know, I think that part of it might be related to, you know, people have had speculations about, you know, social media and the impact that could have on suicide rates. Um as well as, you know, the rise in mental health concerns and more people, you know, are reaching out for health, help and, um, you know, expressing mental health concerns. And that could certainly part, be part of it as yeah. well. But it's really hard to answer. And maybe the rates have been higher in the past, but suicide reporting hasn't always been the greatest. And so maybe we're just now hearing about more reported suicides. I would think uh, the economy, when the economy is bad, maybe that has something to do with it. Sure, there could yeah. be any number of impulses. Yeah, that would really it. anything that someone perceives as a negative experience or it could be related to loss could be a factor that contributes to someone having thoughts of suicide. And certainly with, you know, financial situations and since 2008, that could certainly have something to do with it as well. Bart, what is, does it boil down to basically being a mental health issue? No, absolutely not. And probably one of the biggest myths that we have around suicide um, is that it is predominantly a mental health issue. Uh, uh, Dr. Edwin Schneidman, who founded the American Association of Suicidology and the study of suicidology um, in the 80s and 90s, really fought this battle that we shouldn't medicalize suicide prevention, but but uh, he lost that battle, and it's really unfortunate. Most recent data from the CDC showed that 54% of people who died from suicide um, did not have a diagnosable or a history of a mental illness, right? So that's 56%. Mm. So we know that mental illness can be a part of someone's suicide crisis. Mm -hmm. For some people, it can be a driving factor, but for many people, it's not. So we, in this country, we really like, and, and I think... Uh, Shelby did a really good job. We like simple explanations. Um, and the mm -hmm. truth of the matter is that suicide is what we in, in, in the research business call a complex phenomenon. It's actually a complex and emergent phenomenon. Its cause is indeterminate. Um, and there are many pathways to suicide. And so, he, for an example, the suicide rate was dropping and, and dropping at a, at a pretty good rate until the late 90s. 
into the early 2000s, and then the rate started to increase. Why did the rate start to increase? Well, maybe ask the question, why was it decreasing before then? Mm -hmm. So we have countries, uh, social media, people talk about social media. There are countries that have extensive social media use in Europe where their social media use and phone use is higher than the U.S. Their suicide rates are decreasing. If social media was causing the suicide rate to increase, we would expect it to increase every place where social media is prevalent. That's simply not the case. So we look for really simple answers. Bullying, you'll hear people talk about bullying. Bullying is not even a very good predictor of suicide behavior. Um, it's, uh, there's a small risk associated with bullying, and that's only by people who um, label themselves as being bullied. When we actually look at bullying behaviors and experiencing bullying behaviors, it doesn't predict suicide in any way. So our culture really likes these really simple, oh, it's bullying, or it's it's uh, social media, or it's the economy. All of these things are probably involved in some degree, varying degrees. And also one of the most important things is it's incredibly individualistic. Um, every person's suicide crisis is very specific to them. Here's some things we do know. They're almost invariably connected to loss and pain. Mm. Those things are pretty consistent across the board that it's somebody who's experiencing loss and pain related to that loss, but not everybody who experiences loss and pain even has suicidal thoughts, mm. let alone attempt suicide. Uh, Sergeant, how is law enforcement impacted by this? Well, the call for services have definitely increased uh, over the last few years, and that's where my unit steps in uh, as the CIT unit to where we're constantly, you know, looking at, the, you know, the different trends that are out there, what is everybody else doing, um, and we coordinate on, with the state CIT uh, council, and we're constantly training and evolving to, you know, really uh, determine, you know, what you know? What is the situation at hand, and how can we de-escalate that? And making sure to give this, this individual that's in crisis, making sure that we can give them all the options and the best options that are out there, uh, to where we can help them and uh, get them into the uh, into the right resources, such as Provident or BHR. I want to back up just a little bit to make sure that everybody understands what the work of the crisis intervention team would be. These are specially trained officers who are called upon when someone is acting erratically, basically. Isn't that it? Uh, it's not even just erratically. Um, we might receive a call for service that uh, could be something as simple as somebody is driving down the street and they see an individual that uh, might appear in crisis. Our dispatchers are also tr also trained in CIT to where when a call taker is receiving a call from a member of the community, it's their job to, you know, basically determine, does this sound like there's some type of a mental health crisis that's going on? And then the dispatcher has the opportunity to see basically every police officer that is on duty working in that certain area, and they're able to see what their attributes are, and CIT is is one of the attributes to where they can dispatch the closest CIT officer. Um, so with that, it, again, it might be something as simple as, you know, an individual that's out, you know, walking down the street that might look like they're in need or that it could increase all the way to a more severe level to where uh, this could be a 911 call for service to where, uh, again, somebody could actually be actively suicidal um, and uh, harming themselves. And then once these people are, are confronted, what happens then? Well, basically, all CIT officers, uh, they go through a 40-hour curriculum, which includes mental health and substance use disorders, and we're trained by all the subject matter experts in the area, from uh, the, the mental health experts, substance use disorder experts, legal experts, 
uh, family advocates, and other experienced CIT officers. So one of the biggest, you know, some of the biggest tools that we really use on our tool belt is de-escalation and showing empathy and truly trying to uh, determine what is, um, you know, what what is the underlying factor here and how can we help and what is the best resource and what's the best route to get this individual help. The two people in studio are nodding with mm-hmm. everything that you've said here. Uh, anything, any point you want to make with regard to that, Shelby? Oh, I was going to say that um, we really appreciate the CIT teams because, you know, when we have someone who calls in on our crisis line and is in need of immediate assistance, we always suggest um, a CIT officer go out and talk with this person because they're trained to work with someone who's experiencing some kind of mental health concern, um, and they know how to work with that person. And so we always suggest, you know, if you're calling about a loved one, if you're calling into 911, request a CIT officer because they're the best people to go out and really make a connection with this person. Is that what the calls you're getting? primarily from loved ones who are concerned about someone or or from people who are contemplating Mm -hmm. suicide themselves. We have a ton of calls like that, and it seems like that's going up all the time. Um, Having calls from what we call third parties, so someone who is concerned about a loved one, a friend, family member, coworker, who's concerned that this person might be having thoughts of suicide but just isn't sure how to approach the situation or what kind of help to provide them. So that's a really common call that we have on our crisis lines. Uh, Bart, what would uh, cause someone to make that call? What, What would they be looking at or looking for to have that concern? It's a great question, Don. Um, we encourage family members, loved ones, friends to be looking out for changes in their loved one's behavior. Um, does something feel wrong about what's going on? Now, people often talk about warning signs, and there's all there's there's an uh, infinite list of warning signs I could give you. Um, things to really look out for is: Does my loved one look like they're in pain? Does it look like they're struggling? Does it look like they're detaching or disengaging? Uh, here's another thing I really like people to watch out for: If someone has been doing poorly for a really long time, really struggling and all of a sudden there's a sudden change, a positive change where they were miserable for a long time and all of a sudden there's this sense of weight that's lifted off them, that can be a warning sign that we watch out for. I think the biggest message that, that I like to talk about is we should be asking each other, are you okay? How are you doing? And being able to have honest conversations about this, people need to be able to ask, are you thinking about suicide? And I really want to comment, Sergeant Robinson is incredible. I started at Behavioral Health Response 20 years ago, and although we're funded through the Department of Mental Health, I actually work at BHR, um, I learned how powerful law enforcement is in our suicide prevention efforts, um, and CIT officers are phenomenal. There are times when no matter how good the, the folks at Shelby Shop or my shop are on the phone or mobile outreach, sometimes we have to call law enforcement, and the law enforcement officers in our community are incredibly good at responding to suicide crises and helping people. It's really, we're very blessed in this region to have the level of support we have from law enforcement. Sergeant, as I understand it, and a little about uh, CIT training, that this is relatively new. It's not been around forever, needless to say. But what, what, how were these kinds of things handled before uh, CIT became in vogue? Well, I can tell you that CIT has been in St. Louis County since 2004. Um, It originated out of Memphis, Tennessee in 1988, um, and it's slowly grown into this phenomenal international program. And, Don, the one thing I want your listeners to know, the the one important piece to this is not only – when it comes to, to police officers and having an officer respond to the scene, 
it doesn't even necessarily have to be a CIT officer. And yes, I'm the CIT coordinator, so I'm going to be very pro-CIT and endorsing the program. But just to share with, with you, out of the near 1,000 commissioned police officers that the St. Louis County Police Department has, uh, nearly two years ago, we agreed to become one of the members of the One Mind campaign through Mental Health First Aid. So every commissioned police officer on the entire county police department receives eight hour of mental health first aid training. So that way, even if you're not a CIT officer, you can recognize that somebody's in crisis and you know how to take the proper steps to de-escalate that situation and, and show empathy and help this individual. But out of the thousand police officers that we have on our department, sir, over half of them are CIT trained. So more than 500 police officers have this additional training. And just, you know, somewhat piggybacking off of uh, what Bart was saying, Missouri is one of the leading states in the entire country. I can tell you that we have more than 9,000 CIT officers in the state of Missouri, and more than 5,000 of those are in St. Louis County. Well, that's very impressive. Uh, I, I have a, f- a follow-up question for you, but I want to invite our listening audience into the conversation as well. If you folks out there have uh, issues that you'd like to talk about with our experts here, give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org, or if you prefer to send a tweet, do so at STL on air. So I want to come back to you quickly because uh, I think all of us are familiar with the term suicide by cop. And I'm wondering yes, if, given the uh, the emergence of uh, CIT training here and all over the country, if, if that has been reduced at all as a result of uh, the, the interaction between officers and, and people who may be disturbed. Well, I can tell you that uh, I actually teach a two-hour block on suicide by cop in our eight-hour advanced CIT training. And... Uh, the, the whole, the entire, the term of suicide by cop, it really originated um, back in the late 50s uh, where uh, a doctor out of Philadelphia was doing some research and uh, was able to determine a certain percentage of these officer-involved shootings were coming from this situation where they were provoking law enforcement to actually put them into this lethal force situation because uh, the individual... Uh, wanted to die by suicide. Um, over, basically, over the last 20 years, um, I would, and I hate to say it, that really social media has definitely uh, blown up this phenomenon uh, by suicide by cop. And uh, there's so many, you know, different, uh, you know, entities that are out there that, you know, have the opportunity to, you um, you know, really get this information out there, but uh, it's it is it is a growing concern of ours, and it is training that we give our police officers to where we can recognize uh, when we're arriving on scene, or even when, from the time that we're getting dispatched to a call for service. Does this sound like it could be a situation where an individual is wishing to provoke uh, that lethal response from a, a police officer, and that's why. Uh, with St. Louis County, we every single police officer uh, is trained in, in these less lethal techniques, uh, whether it be you know from the use of a taser or the less lethal shotgun, which is a bean, which is a beanbag round. Uh, we all receive training uh, with these less lethal measures, so we're definitely 
were trying to recognize immediately from the 911 call coming in to recognizing that this individual is trying to provoke us or even a family member will tell us, hey, this individual is saying that they're suicidal and this is what they want law enforcement to do. So immediately when we're going in and we're, sp- we're responding to this situation, we know that we can take the appropriate steps to step back, make sure that we're keeping safe distance, keeping cover, and using the, the de-escalation techniques that we uh, are teaching all these officers and coming out for uh, a positive outcome. Shelby, what is it about, I'm not quite sure I understand this, what is it about social media that could be so provocative? Yeah, well, as Bart said, there's been research into that, but whether we're sure that contributes to suicidal thoughts, not quite positive. But I can tell you at least on... the calls that we get, there are a lot of people who are, you know, expressing thoughts of suicide on social media and, you know, telling people that, you know, something is going on, giving invitations that they're having thoughts of suicide to their friends and and followers on social media. So we get a lot of uh, third-party calls from people concerned about a loved one because of what they're posting on social media. But also, you know, we talk about things like bullying on social media, especially with adolescents and whatnot. And so I think there's some thought that that could be related to thoughts of suicide, but we don't have very good evidence of that. Hmm. Bart, if I may turn to you, uh, you are described as a suicide attempt survivor. Yeah. Uh Uh, What was going on in your world when you were going through this? So for me, uh, I was at a place in my life, I I, I struggle with alcoholism and substance use. Um, I was also a graduate student. I was almost ABD on my, um, my doctorate work, so I was almost finished. And I, I couldn't quite figure out where I belonged in the world, basically. I couldn't, I couldn't find a way to commit to either lifestyle. Part of, uh, I'll be quite honest, part of my lifestyle was kind of wild and crazy. And part of my lifestyle was very much a dedicated student and, and, and young clinician. Um, and I struggled with really severe addiction and alcoholism, which runs uh, through every male through my family as long as I can trace back. Uh, and ran into some legal trouble. Um, and while I was under arrest, um, everything kind of came to a head for me where I mm-hmm. couldn't. When And uh, my version of this has changed over the years. It's been 20 years now. Um, and it's it's a story that there, more and more details um, emerge. But for me, I couldn't find a way to live in the world without using. Um, and uh, using was killing me. Um, and, and that moment when I was under arrest and I couldn't run anymore, um, I made a decision to try to kill myself. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, and and this is one of the reasons that law enforcement is near and dear to my heart, some officers saved my life. Right. Police officers saved my life. Uh, and, and so I'm grateful to law enforcement every single day. Um, and I was really fortunate because that um, that suicide attempt was also the last time I drank. For me, when I stopped drinking, many of the issues in my life resolved themselves. It was not easy. It was a, it was a long journey. But but for me, I had a simple solution. Not drinking solved a huge chunk of my problems and I was able to get on with my life. And so I'm one of the folks ever so grateful that I survived, grateful that law enforcement intervened. Um, and I think the important thing, one of the most important things in the story is as a, as a psychologist, as a licensed professional, um, it took me 16 years to tell this story. It's really difficult for people, uh, medical professionals, mental health professionals, who the evidence suggests that most of us have experience with mental illness, substance use, or suicide. The majority of us do. Um, but you wouldn't know that because we're afraid to talk about it. And that's because licensure boards and, and credentialing bodies can often punish professionals for having a history of mental illness or substance use, not even being an struggling with an active problem. So part of my goal is to tell my story because there's a lot of us out there. Yeah. What story do you hear most often, Shelby? 
oh, gosh, we hear, you know, things all across the board. I mean, people are struggling with with different things all over the place. And so I wouldn't say that we hear one specific story. We've certainly heard stories of people who are struggling with, um, you know, alcohol or substance abuse. Um, But we hear, you know, people calling in about interpersonal problems, problems with their relationships, job loss, um, you know, issues with their struggling with their identity, um, not feeling accepted. So there's no single story that we hear often. I mean, we talk with people about anything in their life that they feel is a struggle at the time. I'm going to take a call. Jay has been waiting. Uh, he's in Normandy and wants to get into the conversation. So, Jay, you're on the air. Go ahead. Yes, hi. I uh, was a little surprised that in the intro that you all didn't talk more about why the increase is going on of this. Doesn't it correlate in a big way to the increase of firearms Um in the general populace, everybody thinks they need a gun, and I would think that's a big reason. And, of course, that's the um, the way that almost always is fatal. So uh, I'm surprised you didn't mention that. And number two, um, I am curious about what that last um, lengthy discussion was about, about the alcohol. So people that abuse alcohol, are they more likely to uh, be in this uh, depressed and uh, suicide state. Thank you. We'll get into that. Jay, thanks for the call. Sergeant, let me give the gun question to you. Uh, I I think we have to point out that uh, maybe the majority of suicides are by gun. Is that correct? Someone here so, at the table. So, in in the United States, in the United States of America, a little over fifty percent of suicide deaths okay. are, are firearm related. Okay, okay. Sergeant, uh, what's what's your reaction to his uh, concern about guns? Well, I understand that uh, you know everybody has an opinion about uh, weapons and different firearms and uh, the availability of them. Um, so, I definitely don't want to get into that piece on uh, who's allowed a firearm and who's not. Um, but yes, it, it is one means that is used uh, uh, in the suicide attempts, and uh, there's also also many other means uh, that people uh, die by suicide. And uh, no matter what, the most important thing for us to remember is firearm uh, medications, whatever uh, the, that method might be uh, that that individual is thinking about. Really, the keys are we have to get out there to the public that we need to recognize these signs and symptoms and we can do better by attempting to intervene and get them the help that they need. Let, let me turn back to Bart then for the yeah. alcohol part of the uh, equation. So we, we we can talk about both. So there there's uh, there's a lot of different evidence around uh, substance use um, and suicide. There's definitely a relationship between people struggling with substance use difficulties and suicide. Uh, I saw a recent study that showed that particularly binge drinking um, and drinking uh, before um, suicide behavior was uh, was common, and that binge drinking was a significant risk predictor of suicide behavior. There is there's a lot of data that suggests that people who are in uh, intense emotional pain are more likely to use substances to alleviate that pain. So we've got this kind of chicken and egg problem going on. So there's no doubt that people who are struggling with substance use are at elevated risk for suicide, just like people with depression are. And one of the things that we do see, one of the interesting phenomenon that some research has gotten at is that when people are using substances and the substances are no longer working for them, when it isn't relieving the pain, that that's when suicide risk can really spike. So I've been doing 
this thing to, to cope and now that thing isn't working for me or it's making life worse, that those are the sorts of things that can really trigger a suicide crisis. And I, I do want to comment on the gun because the gun uh, uh, comment because the, the our listener had a really astute comment. But when we crunch the data um, uh, and look at the U.S. suicide rise of the last 15, 20 years, um, the 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 uh, access to weapons hasn't changed in a way that that predicts or explains the suicide rate. So yes, guns are a part of um, uh, suicide fatalities. We know that people are more likely to die if they use a gun as a suicide means because the fatality rate is the highest of just about any method. But uh, the the gun access um, level has not changed in a way um, that explains the suicide rate increase that we've experienced. And folks have looked at that pretty close. So guns are involved in our efforts. And and we really want to talk about gun safety. That's the real message that we talk about now. Um, When we talk about suicide prevention and guns, we want to emphasize gun safety. This isn't a Second Amendment issue. This is a uh, a safety issue. So if if people are depressed and a lot of pain and they have access to firearms, well, that's something that we need to be talking about and friends need to be talking about um, because we really recognize that having a gun around when you're in a really bad place is dangerous. What about, uh, Shelby, what about young people? We haven't mentioned uh, young people, and Mm -hmm. they kill themselves as well, and they are big social media users, of course. But are are you seeing any kind of an increase at all in in young people with these issues? Sure, yeah. The rates of suicide are going up across the board, even for adolescents, teenagers, um, young adults as well. And we, I mean, certainly I'm I'm hearing it on the crisis lines, having um, minors call in, having thoughts of suicide and not being sure what they're supposed to do about it. Who do they talk talk to? How do they get help? You know, they don't have the ability like adults to go out and get services. So who are they supposed to talk to and what are they supposed to do when they're feeling that way? So we certainly get lots of calls from from minors who are struggling with thoughts of suicide. What sort of resources are available? Mm-hmm. Um, so the typical resources that an adult could use, you know, we, we can suggest hospitalization if they cannot be safe in any other way. That's kind of a last resort. Um, getting them access to counseling, getting them set up with um, adults in their life that are supportive. But to do that, a lot of the times we need to get an an adult involved. So really our main priority um, is how can we talk with this minor about how to get some kind of trusted adult in their life um, to let them in on what's happening so that they can get access to those resources that we know can be helpful when someone is having thoughts of suicide. Is the hospital, Bart, the place for them? No. Oh, no. No, don't go to the hospital unless you absolutely (laughs) have to. Let's talk about that. Um, Now, BHR is very fortunate because with St. Louis City, St. Louis Mm -hmm. County, St. Charles County, and Franklin County, we have Youth Connection Helpline services dedicated specifically for youth where they can call, they can text, they can chat in to get help. About 30% of our contacts with youth, the youth is dealing with a current suicide crisis. So it's, it's, it's prevalent. It's relatively common in the population calling us. Our goal, and we divert over 95% of our youth away from the hospital. I've got bad news for our listeners. There's no evidence that hospitalization for someone experiencing a suicide crisis actually saves their life. It may make things worse for people for a lot of different reasons. So if we can keep people out of the hospital and get them appropriate outpatient care, get family involved, um, that's really key. As Shelby hit on a key point, suicide, more and more evidence is pointing out that one of the things that's the most suicide preventive is making sure the person is not dealing with their crisis alone. Getting family involved, getting peers involved. Uh, Shelby Shop and BHR use something called collaborative safety planning. Part of the element of collaborative safety planning is getting third parties to uh, to speak to us directly and say, hey, this is what's going on with, with Bob and we're really worried about him. Can you help us with this? Getting more people involved and getting them linked with appropriate outpatient services. Obviously, if someone can't be kept safe unless they're hospitalized, then we do that, right? Mm-hmm. But that's actually a small, that's a very small percentage. And unfortunately, one of the problems we have is there's a knee-jerk response by 
mental health professionals. Here's a little secret for your listeners. Most mental health professionals do not have adequate training in suicide assessment and intervention. It's only required in 10 states that they have any training. Missouri finally just passed a law that said you have to have at least two hours of training. That's a great step forward. But the truth is that most mental health providers are not adequately trained, and their knee-jerk response is to send people to the hospital. And then often people end up being admitted, and that's not the best course of treatment, and, and the research is pretty clear on that. We're going to have to wrap this up, but I'd like to get a final uh, statement from each of you. Start with you, uh, Sergeant. Uh, what's your best advice to people out there who think they might be dealing with a situation either uh, themselves or a, fa- a family member or a loved one? What's your best advice? Uh, just like what uh, Bart was just saying, we have to be able to we have to be able to communicate these issues. Um, if you're a family member or a loved one or a friend, if you think that uh, that close family member or friend is is thinking of these thoughts or is in this state of crisis, reach out. You're not alone. Uh, there are friends or families. Um, contact DHR. We have phenomenal programs here at the County Police Department established with the local agencies to where, like Bart was just saying, we don't have to go to the hospital. It's about, you know, even if you have a, a CIT officer respond to your house, we're going to build that relationship. We're going to build that rapport and we're going to have that bond and we're going to do follow-ups with you. And we're going to make sure that you're getting the appropriate help and that you don't feel alone. Uh, we, we're constantly reaching out to BHR. We're having mobile outreach specialists respond to the scene. We're utilizing the iPad program where we're getting a clinician, the face-to-face contact with these individuals while we're on the scene with, uh, with BHR clinicians. There are many steps that are out there. Please, if, if you think that a family member or friend or loved one is having these thoughts, please reach out. You're not alone. We're here to help. Shelby, a final thought? Yeah, um, I definitely agree with everything he said. I would say if you are concerned that someone in your life is having thoughts of suicide, the first thing to do is ask. Ask them directly if they're having thoughts of suicide. That tells you, you know, how, you know, do I need to help this person right now? And know that you're not alone. You don't have to figure out what to do after that. There are hotlines you can call, and we want to help people figure out how to help their loved ones. But the easiest thing to do is ask them, are you having thoughts of suicide? And that tells you where you should go from there. Bart, final thought? If you're out there listening and you're struggling with thoughts of suicide, if you're in a lot of pain, it's important you hear this from all of us. Your pain is real. Your thoughts are real. What you're going through is a real thing, but you're, we don't want you to be alone. We want you to know that there is help available, that you matter, your life matters. So please reach out. We're there. We are going to put a list of resources on our website today, by the way. So, folks, uh, that's a good place to turn to start if you need to be involved in this process. Pardon me. Bart Andrews, thank you so much for being with us uh, with the Missouri Department of Health. Shelby Zurich is Hope After Program Coordinator for Provident and Sergeant Gary Robertson with the St. Louis County Police Department. Thank you, sir, for being with us. I appreciate it. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.